0: point. Turn with me to First Samuel and chapter 21. In the Church Bible, that's page 293. And in the large print Bible, page 451. 1 Samuel 21. And as you're turning there, let me remind you of the context we're about to enter into. David has been anointed king by Samuel, but Saul is trying to kill him. Last week, it became clear David is not safe anywhere near Saul. Saul. Saul is his boss, and also his father-in-law. And now David's on the run. He's jobless, and he's homeless. We pick up in chapter 21, verse 1, and I'm going to read through to chapter 22, verse 5. David went to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he met him, and asked, "'Why are you alone?' why is no one with you? David answered Ahimelech the priest, the king sent me on a mission and said to me, no one is to know anything about the mission I am sending you on. As for my men, I've told them to meet me at a certain place. Now then, what do you have to hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. But the priest answered David, I don't have any ordinary bread to hand. However, there is some consecrated bread here, provided the men have kept themselves from women. David replied, Indeed, women have been kept from us, as usual whenever I set out. The men's bodies are holy even on missions that are not holy. How much more so today? So the priest gave him the consecrated bread, since there was no bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. Now one of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before the Lord. He was Doeg the Edomite, Saul's chief shepherd. David asked Ahimelech, don't you have a spear or sword here? I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon because the king's mission was urgent. The priest replied, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, is here. It is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, take it. There is no sword here but that one. David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. That day David fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, Isn't this David? The king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. So he feigned insanity in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Achish said to his servants, Look at the man, he is insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who are in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. From there, David went to Mizpah in Moab and said to the king of Moab, Would you let my father and mother come and stay with you until I learn what God will do for me? So he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him as long as David was in the stronghold. But the prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold, go into the land of Judah. So David left and went to the forest of Hereth. This is God's word. David is now the homeless king. In previous weeks, we've seen lots of connections between David and Jesus. And they are not accidental connections. Messiah means anointed one. And in God's plan, David is the Messiah who teaches us about Jesus, the true Messiah. So as David goes through this period in his life, a period where he's homeless and hunted, it shouldn't surprise us if we find a preview of Jesus' experience. Both of these Messiahs went through suffering and opposition before they received the throne God had promised them. Many of David's psalms were written during this homeless time of his life. And it's significant that as Jesus hung on the cross, he used one of David's psalms as he cried out to his father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those are David's words from Psalm 22. In God's plan, David's experience was a preview of Jesus' experience. Think of that when you read the Psalms of David. Imagine Jesus praying those Psalms to his Father. It opens up a whole new perspective on the Psalms. We love to see the book of Psalms as written for us, a prayer book for the church. And there's truth in that. But in an even greater sense, they were written for Jesus. In many cases, the words of the Psalms fit best on the lips of God's Messiah. But even as we see this connection between Jesus and David, we need to be clear, David is not the same as Jesus. Jesus is the perfect son of God. David is an ordinary sinful man who happens to be chosen by God to foreshadow Jesus. In many ways, David is no different from the rest of us. The Bible is open and honest about David's flaws. But in God's plan, David was given a special role in history. He's the Messiah who teaches us about the Messiah. So don't be surprised when David sins. When David shows his imperfections. He's not perfect. He's here to point us to the perfect one. And with that in mind, let's look at our passage. We find David here running away from Saul. He's alone, he's unarmed, and he's hungry. And the first place he heads for is a town called Nob. It's only a few miles from Saul's headquarters in Gibeah. Look again at chapter 21, verse 1. David went to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? David answered Ahimelech the priest, The king sent me on a mission and said to me, No one is to know anything about the mission I am sending you on. As for my men, I have told them to meet me at a certain place. At the beginning of 1 Samuel, when Samuel was born, the main place of worship in Israel was Shiloh, but that was many decades ago. It's likely that by this point, Shiloh has been destroyed during the wars with the Philistines. It seems that Nob is the new center for worship. And it's no accident that David heads there because he hopes to find two things there that he desperately needs. But when he gets there, it's obvious Ahimelech is not too excited to see David. Actually, he's terrified. He may well know about the trouble between David and Saul. And when David arrives alone, the obvious conclusion is that he's on the run. And Ahimelech is not sure if he wants to get involved with a man on the run from Saul. Obviously, David can sense that Ahimelech is very nervous. And maybe David wants to try to protect him. Or maybe he's suspicious of Ahimelech. He's not sure if he can trust him. Whatever it is that David's thinking, there is no doubt about what David does. He lies to Ahimelech. He spins him a yarn about a secret mission and the troops being at a secret meeting place. None of it's true. It's a story designed to put Ahimelech at ease because David needs his help. So if you had been starting to think in previous weeks that David is perfect, now you know he's not. We'll see next week David's deception here contributes to a horrible mess. And David comes to deeply regret it. But even in the midst of this, God is going to provide for his Messiah. David asks for bread, and the only bread available is what Ahimelech calls consecrated bread. What was that? Well, at this point, God is worshipped in a tent called the tabernacle. Only the priests can go inside that tent. One of the things in there was a table, which always had 12 loaves of bread on it. That bread was called the bread of the presence. No one except the priests could see it, of course, but everyone knew it was there. And it was a symbolic way of saying, the Lord is present here. He's at home among his people. The bread was changed regularly to keep it fresh. And when it was removed from the tabernacle, the law said only the priests could eat it. It had been set apart for God. So it was only to be eaten by men who were set apart for God. But look what Ahimelech does. He gives David the holy bread. Sure, he checks first that David is ceremonially clean. But normally being ceremonially clean would have no relevance in this situation. The bread is not for ordinary people whether they're clean or not. But David, Ahimelech, takes the holy bread and gives it to David. Now, he may not have known that David has been anointed as king. That's probably not public knowledge yet. But somehow, maybe without even knowing why he's doing it, Ahimelech does the right thing. The holy bread is set apart for God. And Ahimelech gives it to God's king. So as we read this, the point here is not God's commands don't matter. We are not being told here that compassion trumps God's commands. The Holy Bread was not available to every hungry person who came along. No, the point here is that God's law serves God's Messiah. When God's Messiah is in need of daily bread then holy bread becomes his daily bread. In the grand scheme of things, this holy bread was protected by God's law so it would be here when God's Messiah needed it. God is never at a loss when it comes to providing for his king. And when you and I belong to the king, then we benefit from God's resourcefulness even though we don't deserve it. David doesn't deserve it here. He hasn't been honest. But in God's grace, David gets his daily bread. How much more then will God provide for his perfect king, Jesus, the one who is fully worthy, the one who always does what pleases his father? How much more will God provide for him? And through Jesus, we receive everything we need. Well, not only did David go on the run without companions and without food, he also went without a sword or spear to defend himself. And normally, a town full of priests would be the last place you'd find a decent weapon. But look what happens down in verse 8. David asked Ahimelech, don't you have a spear or sword here? I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon because the king's mission was urgent. The priest replied, the sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, is here. It is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, take it. There's no sword here but that one. David said, there's none like it. Give it to me. Initially, we know that David had kept hold of Goliath's weapons. But for some reason, the sword has ended up being stored among the holy things here at Nob. It may be David knew the sword was here, and that's why he came. But whether he knew or not, the outcome is, the man who had to run for his life with nothing is provided with the best sword in all Israel. As David says, there is none like it. God's king is homeless, but God is meticulously providing for his king. Holy bread and a special sword. Today, we serve a king who had nowhere to lay his head. That's what the New Testament tells us about Jesus. But our God has not lost his ability to provide for his king and to provide for all those who belong to his king. Well, so far, so good for David. But what happens next is a case of out of the frying pan and into the fire. Remember what David has been doing for the last few years of his life. He has been leading Israel's armies in successful battles against the Philistines. So it is very hard to understand why he decides to do what he does next. Verse 10. That day David fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. The town of Nob was only a couple of miles away from Saul. So it makes perfect sense that David wants to get further away from Saul. And Gath certainly is further away. It's about 23 miles southwest towards the coast. And it is out of Saul's territory. But it's in Philistine territory. In fact, this is Goliath's hometown. You can be sure the people of Gath have heard about this boy who killed their celebrity citizen a few years ago. And now that grown-up boy arrives, alone, carrying Goliath's sword. I guess it's a sign of how desperately David wanted to get away from Saul. He had to be desperate to run to Gath, of all places. But presumably he does his best to try and stay unnoticed. But not surprisingly, it doesn't work. Look at verse 11. But the servants of Achish said to him, Isn't this David, the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Obviously, this song is an international hit. It's even getting played on Philistine radio. And notice, the servants of Achish call David the king of the land, meaning the king of Israel. What that tells us is apparently, by this stage, Israel's enemies see David as the one with the power, not Saul. But when David figures out that he's more famous than he thought he was, he realizes he's made a big mistake coming to Gath. Look at verse 12. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. So he feigned insanity in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate, and letting saliva run down his beard. In their hands means under arrest. They put David in prison. The heading of Psalm 56, which we read earlier, that psalm tells us David wrote it about this particular experience. And despite the fact that David is very much afraid, he's able to write in Psalm 56, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise. In God I trust and I'm not afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? David is very much afraid, and yet he remembers God's word. He remembers God's promise to make David king. And so David can say, I am not afraid. What can mere mortals do to me in the face of God's promise? They can't prevent God fulfilling his promise. And in his fear that gives way to trust in God, David tries a pretty desperate plan. He pretends to be mad. He covers his prison cell in nonsense graffiti. He drools. And amazingly, he is released by the Philistines. Verse 14, Achish said to his servants, Look at the man. He's insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madman that you have to bring this fellow here? To carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? Into my house means into my city. Akish has a pretty low opinion of his own people, obviously. He says, I'm surrounded by idiots already. Why would I want another one around? Send him away. Was this clever work by David? Yes, I suppose so. But what are the chances of Achish reacting this way? I would say they were pretty slim chances. A more predictable reaction would be to display David's head on a spike. David's plan works because God makes it work. David is thrown out of prison because God is protecting his king. That's how David himself sees it. The heading of Psalm 34 tells us it was written after he was driven away from Gath. And in Psalm 34, David says, not, wasn't I clever to get out of that pickle? No, that's not what he says. David says, this poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. David knows his plan was a long shot. It was a million to one. He was thrown out of the Philistine prison, not because he was clever, but because the Lord heard his cry and delivered him. God provides for his king and God delivers his king. Whenever we experience deliverance in our lives or blessing of some sort, let's remember who deserves the praise for it. Yes, it's very important that you and I plan. It's important that we use the brains and the gifts God has given us. We have to try to be wise. We have to try even to be shrewd, the Bible says. But let's never forget we are completely dependent on God. David's plan was good up to a point. But it was not David's plan that kept his head off a spike. It was the angel of the Lord who encamped around him and delivered him. So yes, let's do our best. Let's be as wise as we can. And let's also remember, it is the Lord who saves and delivers. When our plans succeed, it's the Lord who deserves the praise. David is alone. He's homeless. And he's going to stay homeless for a long time. But he is not going to be alone for very long. At the beginning of chapter 22, David is joined by an army of, out, of misfits. God gathers people to his king. Look again at chapter 22, verse 1. David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. From there, David went to Mizpah in Moab and said to the king of Moab, would you let my father and mother come and stay with you until I learn what God will do for me? So he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him as long as David was in the stronghold. But the prophet Gad said to David, do not stay in the stronghold. Go into the land of Judah. So David left and went to the forest of Hereth. Adullam is ten miles southeast of Gath. What that means is David is now back in Israelite territory. And he's about 15 miles away from Bethlehem. That's his home his family are almost certainly in danger from Saul because they're David's family. Somehow they get word where David is and they join him in the cave. And we shouldn't think of this cave as a little hole in the rock. Scholars tell us some of the caves in this area are as big inside as basketball courts. And David wouldn't have been limited to just one of those caves. Which is a very good thing, because one cave would have got pretty cramped pretty quickly. Verse 2 tells us about 400 men joined him there, and maybe their families were there too. And notice again the description of these people in verse 2 all those who were in distress, or in debt, or discontented gathered around him, and he became their commander. The word translated discontented is literally with a bitter spirit. It was used to describe Hannah way back in chapter 1. As Hannah prayed for a child. There it was translated as deep anguish. So God's anointed king, God's Messiah, hides in this cave. And God sends to him those who are hard pressed. Those who are disillusioned and deprived. Those who just don't fit in anywhere else. And these people find protection from God's king. We're told David takes his father and mother across to Moab. Now Moab was traditionally an enemy of Israel. And yet amazingly, David's great-grandmother was from Moab. Her name was Ruth. In the Bible, her story comes just before 1 Samuel. The final verses of the book of Ruth trace David's ancestry back to her. And if you know that story, Ruth herself was a misfit in Israel. She was a foreigner who didn't really belong there. And yet over a century later, it's probably because of her that the king of Moab takes in David's parents. God makes a habit of including misfits in his plans. God uses misfits in amazing ways. And the final verse of our passage tells us God's word was coming to David at this time. The prophet Gad was with him, Directing him according to God's word. So think for a moment about the contrast here between those who are with David and those who are still with Saul. In terms of human comforts and material things, there's no question those with Saul are better off. All David can offer his followers in in that aspect of things is a cave in the wilderness. But then think beyond material things. Those with David have a leader who cares for them. We've just seen that. What about those who are with Saul? Well, last week we saw Saul curse his son Jonathan and then try to kill his son Jonathan. Saul doesn't even care for his own family, never mind anyone else. And what about God's word? Well, God's word has not been heard in Saul's court for a long time. Several times we've been told the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. But out here in the wilderness, in the caves of Adullam, God is communicating with David through his prophet Gad. So here's what's happening in Israel. Those who are content with material things, those who prize physical comfort and security above anything else, those people are staying with Saul. They're not going to give that up for a drafty cave. But those people in Israel who are looking for more, those who are looking for acceptance, those who are looking for a king who is both strong and loving, those who are disillusioned with the kingdom of Saul, they're heading for Adullam with David. And when they get there, they're finding a welcome. They're finding protection and they are hearing God's voice, even out in the wilderness. This bunch of misfits have become God's people under the rule of God's king. And all they had to do was decide to walk away from Saul's kingdom and into David's. And when it comes to God's ultimate Messiah, Jesus, we find that God has not changed his game plan. He's still gathering outcasts and misfits. The New Testament calls Christians exiles, aliens. Those who come to Christ are those who are disillusioned with what this world has to offer. There are men and women who are no longer content to live for just material things. Not content with just trying to climb the ladder in life. And in the eyes of this world, most of us who come to Jesus don't amount to very much anyway. Look around you, we're not much to look at. Many of us are not what this world would call winners. Winners. And it's always been that way with Jesus' people. Listen to what the New Testament says about those God calls to his king. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth. And if ever there was a group of misfits, it was the believers in Corinth. The Apostle Paul says to them, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you are wise by human standards. Not many were influential, not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, and the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. Notice what Paul is saying. God does not call misfits because he's not able to get anyone else. No, God chose to do it this way. And this morning, he is still calling the downtrodden and the disillusioned. Maybe you've gone through life feeling like you just don't belong. The message of God's word is that you will find a welcome with King Jesus. But if you feel like you've got it all together, if you feel superior in some way, if you think that this world has all you need, then you're not ready to join the king. The king is looking for those who are discontented with this world. Who are discontented with the empty promises and the hollow treasures of this world. And when you begin to see things that way, when you begin to realize you're not as strong as you thought you were, then you're ready. And when you come to King Jesus, you will find acceptance you will find that finally you belong. You'll find that you're provided for and sustained in ways you could never have imagined before. And when King Jesus returns to claim his kingdom, you will share in his inheritance. Before we respond to God's word ourselves, The musicians are first going to sing a song for us. This is the way the song begins. The words will be on the screen.